Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijera. I'm your host. And each and every week, we bring you someone who has been a game changer in their field and who's touched the lives of thousands to get their perspective on their journey, their mindset, their struggles and successes so that we can inspire you on your journey. So let's get started right now. And welcome to Game Changers Live. My name is Sergio. You can catch us each and every week here on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite platforms. And like we said, we bring on Game Changers who have been uh, leaders in their field that have done something truly spectacular. And so my guest today is Noble Dracon. He's been an avid music royalty investor for decades, and he's also CEO of Wearplay Games, Inc., a mobile AR, XR game design and development studio. Having started out as a futures and commodities broker at the age of 19, trading the E-mini S&P, gold futures contracts, and treasury bond strips, he went on to author the Wiley & Sons published best-selling books, Winning the Trading Game, and Trade Like a Pro. And along with being a tech investor, financial author, and sought-after speaker, Noble has been a contributor writer to Forbes, Futures Magazine, and a radio and TV financial commentator on Bloomberg and Fox Business, and most recently partnered up with Barnaby Anderson to launch the NFT music startup, BanRoyalty.com. Welcome, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me, Sergio. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic, brother. Hey, I can't wait to get into all this talk because, I mean, there's a lot of good content here in terms of trading, in terms of band royalty, mm -hmm. NFT world, blockchain, all this good stuff. But let's let, let me hear about you first and kind of what's your story, right? Because this this whole uh, podcast is all about inspiring other people on their journey. And, you, you know, success mm -hmm. looks like uh, it was overnight, but it was it was more like a 20, 30 year overnight success. Right. In most cases. So mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think we have varying degrees of success at different times. And, you know, people kind of see you at the moment and oftentimes people don't know from your past. So, you know, we have this project band royalty that we've started, but, you know, I was a commodities futures broker and hedge fund operator for almost 26 years, 24 years, uh, somewhere in that range. And uh, I started off like 17 and a half. I graduated uh, high school early and uh, I was basically homeless. I left home and decided to become an entrepreneur and start a business and me and a couple of buddies decided to buy uh, our first uh, business, which was a coffee house. Uh, the owner was selling it and we were trying to do an acquisition. And that's where I learned how to write a business plan, how to pitch investors and the like. And, and we found the money uh, to get the coffee house. Unfortunately, the deal didn't finalize or go through, but it taught me a lot. And it led to me really wanting to be uh, uh, to kind of figure out where I wanted to be in finance because I, I didn't know what my career path was going to be. But I knew that I wanted to do something in finance, and I knew I liked investing and trading. So, so at like 17, 18 years old, you just decided that, okay, we're going to start off and buy a coffee shop? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was me <laughs> how and two other buddies. You know, how is that <laughs> thinking possible? I mean, were you guys just you know business savvy uh, friends, and you guys wanted to do something uh, incredible yeah. right off the bat, or what? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, at that time, it was... Uh, coffee houses were everywhere, and uh, I lived in Long Beach, so coffee houses were everywhere. And uh, 
it just seemed logical to be honest. I, you know, we thought we could do something different and do it in a different way. And the price was not very, even then the price didn't seem expensive. I mean, only like 70 or $80,000 was the, the buyout to buy into the coffee house and, and run it. We'd still lease it, but we we're going to take over operations. And we, you know, we found an investor to do it. Uh, I just don't, I don't know, you know, maybe because I've always been an entrepreneur. I mean, when I was a, a kid in fourth grade, I used to sell comic books to, to my friends. I'd buy them for three, four buck. And then, you know, we lived, we lived on one side of the town and then we went to the good side of the town and we'd sell them for a buck a piece. Right. So nice. for every dollar I spent, I made an extra two bucks. Uh, I sold candy. Uh, I mean, so for me being an entrepreneur, um, just natural. It's not, it was natural. I mean, I always, ever since I was a kid, I used to do Milan's. I used to work at the library when I was 12. I started working as a pay, library page, making like 11, 12 bucks an hour because it, it was a city job, right? Yes. So you're, you're putting books on the shelf and you're making 11 or 12 bucks an hour yeah. and then 89.90, <laughs> right? And people are fighting for minimum wage now for 15 bucks. Yeah. So it's, it's always been, uh, I guess, in my blood to kind of uh, find how to just make extra money. Cause you know, I grew up poor, you know, my mom was a single mom, you know, the cliche single mom, uh, you know, going to school, you know, trying to, she graduated eventually from USC, but we were on welfare. Uh, I mean, it's just one of those things where you're like, you're always feeling like you're lacking. And so you always feel mm -hmm. like you have to make up the difference. Wow. So you tried to buy the coffee house, didn't go, didn't go through. And then mm -hmm. at that point, what, what were you, what were you thinking? What was the next step? You know, for me, I, I still thought maybe I'll go straight back to college or I, I didn't really, you know, I graduated high school early. I didn't, I wasn't in a rush at our, I was one of the top people in the class. I'd done really well. I had college courses under my belt. So I didn't, I felt like I had time to, to go straight to college. And uh, I, I ran into, uh, instead of owning coffee, I ended up working at one of the local coffee houses. And I ran into a guy who was uh, a gold dealer and he was doing commodities and physical gold. Uh, he claimed his family was from Sudan and that's kind of how he got into the business. And so I became an assistant to him. And as he, uh, as I started learning about gold and the like, I ended up at 19 getting my commodities license. So at 19, I was a series three commodities broker. And uh, the first six months was a huge struggle because I didn't know how to sell and I didn't know how to close and I have any techniques or whatever. And, um, but by the second half of the year, I was making 150,000 a year uh, as a body broker. Yeah. I mean, because we, in that, in those days we were charging a hundred dollars each side and the brokers uh, for commissions to trade and the brokers kept about 30% of that. And so I built a book of clients and, and, and I started, so immediately I'm making probably wow. more than had I had gone straight to college. Oh yeah. Start off. You know, and that's when I realized the power of sales, the power of, of uh, the investment industry, the idea of assets under management and what that meant for people's lifestyles. And that really uh, uh, changed my perspective on why, like, why, why wasn't everyone learning this, right? And why right. wasn't everyone, you know, and so I had to go through that period of, of really not trying to make everybody be like me because I realized that not everybody wanted to sell. Not everybody wanted to, you know, they didn't see the, 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 the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Most right. people were too fixated on, well, what if you can't sell and working on commission is so hard. And, yeah. and for me, uh, immediately 
uh, I was sold on commission and commission working because I realized that whatever energy you put in, uh, you receive back in, in exponentially. Uh, right, and you can control the outcome yourself. Well, you, you can control yourself and the outcome. I think that, you know, if you're just a horrible salesperson or, or the industry is not favorable, then no. there's, there's, there's only so much you can do, but it feels good to be able to um, know for a fact that you aren't left to someone else's whims on whether or not they sure. fire you or cut you or whatever, that you, that you yourself uh, are the driving force behind your success and failure. And for you to realize that sometimes it's time to pivot, that maybe it isn't working and you change. And that's the biggest driver, right, behind entrepreneurialism and, and folks that change, you know, from a career that they want to become an entrepreneur. I think they get to the point where they finally realize, realize that they don't want to succumb to somebody else's whims and, you know, one day get fired just because the boss is having a bad day and, you know, they, they, want, to, they want to build something for themselves. But you were able to find that out pretty young, uh, which is a, a great gift. Yeah, it was it was it was good, and you know, I ended up getting my degree in finance, but I'd already I got it because you know the optics, right? Because it's good, you, you know, your parents want to still see sure. you in college with your degree, but uh, it didn't change anything. I still was a commodities broker, and I still was in that particular industry and was starting businesses. And uh, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, I've had more failures than successes. I try to explain that to people. The the what life has taught me is to kind of nip those failures as fast as possible and to pivot as quickly as possible to mm -hmm. the next thing don't get caught up psychologically or emotionally in whatever it is because uh the moment you do then you can't really see a pathway to success you have to really understand that failure and loss are part of the game and you know the, the goal is to try during those periods to maintain integrity not to try and go down with the ship. Yeah, yeah. Fail fast and make it part of the process, and just kind of get packed. Don't, don't take it personally because you are going to trip and fall many times, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but people don't see that, right? They they only see the successful guy. They don't see all the bumps and bruises that you've had <laughs> along the mm -hmm. way. Um, so then, um, you so you started trading, uh, very successful at a young age. Then then what? Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. Now, mind you, in the beginning, I was not a good trader. We'll start. We'll start there. But <laughs> I understood how it worked, and you know, in the in the in the commodities firm, you know, you first learn to follow the analyst, right? And the analysts are always giving you the recommendations and the trades, and you pass those on to your clients. And it was only after several years that I started realizing that I couldn't trust the analysts. That the analysts, mm. they had the same tools and information that I had, and I had to kind of step up my game to really understand what it is that they were looking at. And that's when I started. Uh, writing books because one of the fastest ways to learn something is to teach somebody else. And so I started writing books and doing more research. And I've had the the pleasure and luck to uh, be on stage with the person who brought um, candlesticks to the U to the U.S. Steve Neeson. Uh, really? Been on wow. stage with uh, uh, John Bollinger, the inventor of Bollinger Bands. Um, again, you know, for the nerds and the geeks who are trading, you know, you know these. Uh, yeah. You know, Larry, Larry Williams, uh, who I uh, brought up a lot of uh, really cool indicators that you could see. Uh, he actually is the one who introduced me to Wiley and Sons so I could actually publish my first series of books. Uh, and Larry Williams has long, long been kind of a spiritual mentor from afar uh, over the years with suggestions and et cetera. So um, I've had a lot of interesting experiences uh, in the industry. I was the editor of Futures Magazine at one point 
George Kleinman, who was a former editor, uh, uh, I took over his position and wrote the the uh, uh, newsletter article that went out, the newsletter that went out for trading. So it, it was just very interesting my career in that space. But one of the things that I'd always do, because again, I'm the same guy who at 17 went to buy a coffee house, is I would work for like nine months really hard, <clears throat> and then during the summer. I'd always start a new business or try and find an escape hatch, right? Because, you know, I liked trading and I liked the industry, but in the back of my head was always the movie Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I don't know if you ever remember that movie. No, <laughs> which one? Yeah, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is about a bunch of old salesmen who are fixated on having the perfect leads. And uh, Jack Lemon's in it, uh, Alec Baldwin's in it, uh, I think Robert De Niro's in it. Um, so it's really, it's a really, if you watch it, it's just a really good salesman movie. And it just, uh, talks about the sadness of older salesmen and, um, where they're looking for always the, the past deal that they used to sell and how great the former deal was. And so for me, because I was so young in the industry, you know, literally everyone was 20, 20 plus years, my senior, oftentimes I didn't want to always end up being a broker. And so I really was trying to always find an escape hatch, right? Like, okay what project can I do next and what can I invest in and what kind of project can I uh, participate in? And so one of the projects uh, I got involved with was uh, the music industry and trying to help my cousin start a music label. And we end up setting up a label and getting a distribution deal, a uh, press and distribution deal through a group called uh, Private Eye Mercury. Uh, Mercury was bought out by Universal. And that's really where I learned about buying and selling royalties, investing in musicians, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so we ended up starting to do a, a record label together, and that's what kind of got me into the music um, space and really understanding um, what it meant about music royalties and how major corporations made their money. Uh, I started learning about performance royalties and um, just all these different types of royalties that go out mechanicals and really where the money is. You know, it's great to tour. It's great to be quote-unquote famous, but on the flip side, the money is at all the royalties. That's really uh, where I started to just really understand more and more about the industry and how you know royalties are traded, like baseball cards, amongst all the different uh, major entities and even amongst the individuals. So for those listening, so a, a, a royalty is just a fee that's distributed out to a number of people, right? Every time a, a, a track, a song is played at a bar and a, on a station, whatever, right? And there's a lot of people that get a slice of that pie. And, um, and you know, everyone from the, 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 the musician himself to the writer to the label to, and then you could buy a slice of that pie. Is that correct? Yeah, so there, so there's a lot of different pies. Uh, so what happens is, like anything, one piece of music can live almost in perpetuity. You end up in a commercial. You know, I, I was listening to the uh, some kind of uh, commercial regarding washer and dryers, and I'm hearing old dirty bastard song, uh, "Give Me the Money" as the <laughs> as as the sync royalty going on in that in that music video, right? Yeah. Now, ODB has passed away, That's and funny. the music had nothing to do with washer and dryers, and here it is being played on washer and dryers years later. Uh, people don't know, Merv Griffin did the uh, uh, tune for Jeopardy. He was actually making a song up for his son to help him go to sleep, and then that became do 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 oh, and all no that kidding. became part of the Jeopardy song. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, and he ended up making <laughs> $4 to $8 million 
off of that song because it was being paid, it was synced yeah. to Jeopardy. And so wherever Jeopardy was syndicated, he got a check every time it was played. So when uh, I got into the uh, royalty industry, I started learning how all these different pies exist and then how all these slivers exist. And, uh, it, it was a real eye opener on how money is made in the music industry. And just like credit card industry, right? You know, it's 2%, 3%. You're thinking it's not a lot of money. But yet, Mastercard and Visa are billion-dollar industries off these two to three percent transactions, to the point of where people are hoping they can like shave off half a percent or a quarter percent, or uh, stores are passing that two percent or three percent on to the consumer now because it was really eating into their bottom line, and it just generates a lot of income, and there's a lot of it. So the people who are receiving the royalties, um, who may only rely on a handful of songs, fifteen songs, thirty songs. They're the ones who end up getting frustrated because they want to live a certain lifestyle, but their checks are coming in certain amounts every six months or right. you know, every quarter or once a month. And we all know that our bills are monthly and you can't wait for six months before your biggest check comes to take care of sure. all your bills. Otherwise, they get backed up and come behind you. And so that's when I realized that people are looking constantly for uh, individuals to either invest, lend against, uh, sell, or buy their royalties. And that's when I started understanding or learning about this industry. So then you, you applied this, this knowledge to the NFT space and, uh, and, and the blockchain technology that goes with it. And so for those of, uh, you know, out there that aren't familiar with what NFTs are, um, let's talk a little bit about that and then what you guys have done with this, uh, with the band royalty. Well, you, now you talked about my, so after I, I did my hedge fund, I, you know, I, I basically retired. I didn't want to be in the commodities industry anymore. I really couldn't figure out what next I wanted to do. Uh, but about five years ago, uh, I got introduced to the idea of augmented reality. And I filed a patent on combining augmented reality <clears throat> with clothing and merchandise and uh, different items and stuff. And I started a gaming company called Wearplay Games. Now, Wearplay Games was meant initially to break into the NFT space because we wanted to give NFTs away to people who played our games. And NFTs are just simple. The, the term means non-fungible token. And it's like Bitcoin or Ethereum. But instead of Ethereum, which can be broken down into fractional little slices down to... Point zero zero with mm -hmm. you know eight zeros and a one right uh, you know a non fungible token is one item and it's tracked on the blockchain so we figured that if we could give our game players you know one item you know a special sword in the game or a special character in the game then they could trade that amongst themselves and be successful at it and you know we we were really excited about doing it but it was very difficult uh, in the beginning. No one knew what the protocols were going to be, you know, what the popular ones were going to exist and finding programmers to do it, all that great stuff. So we ended up uh, kind of postponing it for a while. And in 2020, we released our first series of gaming non-fungible tokens around a unicorn game that's coming out uh, with our gaming company called Carousel World. And that was June of 2020. People, it was still starting off. People were just now starting to kind of get an idea of what it was. Uh, and what was exciting was that William Shatner had released the first almost successful NFT at the time. 
Uh, he right. sold out over $100,000 worth of NFTs in nine minutes. And the software Jeez. was easier than ever before. And so I reached out to the developers. We started developing, getting relationships. And we began our NFT, you know, I began my NFT journey there uh, with unicorns, actually. And that, that was exciting. <laughs> so it wasn't really, it really wasn't uh, uh, anything to do with music or the idea of music royalties right, or anything. Right. It was just how do we make our games enhanced and how do we give people value to play our games? And the cool part was they could have these unique, distinct unicorns. And, you know, we were right. really super excited about it. My community, we did over 70000 almost $80,000 in sales. Our community loved it. And uh, I realized we were on to something. And, you know, so when, when, when you talk about my collaboration with Barnaby, Barnaby and I, for the last two years, were already working on another game that our company is going to distribute called King of Quotes. So after the success of uh, Carousel World's initial launch of Unicorns, we actually did a launch on uh, King of Quotes, which is a, a quote game of World War II and people understanding history. And we released the game that we originally were giving away for free uh, on the internet. We knew that we were going to turn it into a crypto. We just didn't know what it was. And we released that as our second NFT. And that NFT went out, uh, was King of Quotes, World on Fire. We generated another 50 to $60,000 almost within hours of wow. that project that's continually selling. And so we started really looking at, you know, what the uh, growth or the next phase could be, not only for my gaming company, but for products that we were working on. And NBA Top Shots came out. NBA Top Shots sold over $350 million. Yeah, that was incredible. Worth. Yeah, yeah that, that's what blows my mind is that, so these are you know digital assets, right? They're they're like trading cards, but dig in digital format. That, like you said, you can watch. It's a highlight. Mm -hmm. It's like a six second highlight that you can watch. But somehow you own that highlight, or you own one a copy of it, and people are paying fortunes for it. You know, it's <laughs> it's unbelievable. Fortunes, hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, like, can you? I mean, I don't even know if you can like replay it, or can you resell? I mean, like, I didn't understand what the position was in owning these highlights, right? Right. Because it's great to have it as an NFT, and you're one of 140 people. And, and that excitement part of it is like, but it's a trading card at that point. Yeah. Is one trading card worth 200 grand? I don't know. You know, maybe it is. And, and that, I, I guess really it's worth it. whatever somebody yeah. wants to pay for it, is willing to pay for exactly. it. <laughs> exactly. And so in my mind, I started, pay, I started changing my perspective. And I said, you know, I've been doing music royalties for years. What if we actually created an NFT that was somehow linked to real world assets that actually function and do something Correct. and how that scenario would work. And so Barbie and I put our heads together um, and we, we knew that we were going to put NFTs and the NFTs really, just to be clear, the, the NFTs we created really have nothing to do with the artwork. Uh, excuse me, have nothing to do with the royalties. They're all artwork based. You know, we created 3000 music diversity nfts that exist and they're part of a limited series there's only three thousand of them in this series one uh these are the only images of them the way they are and it's listed one to three thousand uh the first one our top one which we were excited about sold for a hundred thousand dollars and our next two sold our next top two sold for another hundred thousand little over a hundred thousand so wow. we sold three nfts for over two hundred and ten thousand dollars or whatever the case may be and it was, and so we realized that we were onto the right thing. The beauty of it, though, is we instead of just taking all the money, you know, like you know, I don't know what anybody else does with their NFTs. Instead of just taking the money, 
and just selling NFTs out uh, outright and calling it a day, we would take at least 50% of all the revenue generated and buy music royalties with it. So that all of these NFTs that we're selling that are art-based, people can eventually come back and stake. Now, there's no direct correlation that when you buy the NFT, you own any of the copyrights that we own. That's not how we designed it. But we, how we designed it was we wanted to create a income stream that if anybody wants to just stake their NFTs, it was there for them. There's going to be hoops that people have to jump and different things that they're going to have to do to get access to it. But the reality is the money's coming in from a real world asset yeah. that people can see. And in fact, play the songs and the music on their on their on their radio or, mm-hmm. or on, their, on their Spotify or stream stream it. And so that was really the novel component of it, that here we are. We're not just taking the money and run. You could buy our NFTs, but we are literally creating a mechanism of a real world asset that could support the project and makes coherent sense that here is an NFT celebrating music, diversity. It's got all this great art, but also there's these royalties that I could eventually access or tap into. Yeah, so it provides an actual stream of income as a return yeah. on the investment, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and to be honest, we don't know what the return on investment would be. It's just uh, it creates added value to the NFT that the only way you can access any of these royalties that we've accumulated and we're sharing is if you own one of our NFTs. You couldn't just own a random NFT and show up. It has to be a banned royalty NFT. And once you have that banned royalty NFT and you jump through the hoops, now you have an access to the those 50% stream of revenues we, we share. Interesting. Really interesting. I think that's that's a great point, man, because I think a lot of people struggle with kind of wrapping their heads around, what do we do with this? once we have it and it, okay, is it just, it's an inherent value because, and it's digital. You can yeah. never touch it. You can never like feel it. You know, it's exactly. all code in your computer. And so it's kind of hard for people to put value on it, but it, at least if you have some kind of uh, income stream attached to it with, like you said, tied to a real world asset, that makes it, I think a lot more valuable in people's mind. They can kind of, they can see where it's coming from. Yeah, well, so, exactly. And that is, like I said, you don't own anything. You know, it's not like you, you still own get access to, to stream right that yeah. you get access yeah and, and that and that i think was for me as a nft buyer because i buy nfts that's where i thought the opportunity was and that was lacking you know i get appreciation and i've traded my whole life but the reality is things don't always go straight up forever right and right. if you want to hold on to it and you kind of want to wait for it to come back in value or nfts to become the the hot thing again you know, you would like to be able to stake it or park it or put it somewhere where you know that you can earn some kind of interest or earn some kind of money based on it. And it's not, and we're not, you know, people may only be getting, you know, pennies on the dollar, like a 50 cents here, a dollar here, whatever it is that they'll end up, depending on what royalty pool they pick. But the beauty of it is they have some place to put it. They don't have to just let it sit and do nothing. And that's right. always been the complaint about the banks, right? The banks are not paying any interest whatsoever. And so why sit your money in the bank? I almost feel the same way about NFTs. If you buy hot on Monday and it's cold on Friday, well, then you're just off as you better just as good to put your money in the bank at that point because now you're locked and there's nothing you can do about it. That's right. That's right. Well, man, you guys are doing some really interesting things in this space. I, I feel like this is um, like the the mid '90s with the internet, like where people sort of trying to figure out what's what's to come in this space. 
And there's so much that yes. we haven't we haven't even figured out yet, but it is coming. And so you want to you know get on board. You want to you know dip your toe in the water, try these things so you can start seeing how this functions. Because once you pull the curtain back, there's so much. There's a whole nother world you know back here that people aren't necessarily you know playing in at this point. Yeah, we all call it Web 3.0. You know, we knew that the the internet isn't. First of all, the internet has been around since the 70s. You know, but then it evolved, this is going to continue to evolve, and that this whole idea of the blockchain is really vital to the internet because we've been passing forth, back and forth digital assets this whole entire time, but no one's been able to track it. So the idea that you have custody, uh, you know, I love crypto and I love the idea of Bitcoin and Ethereum, but people have to look at what this really is, and it's double booking accounting. It's double, it's, it's a ledger. And that's why it's called the distributed ledger technology that you for, yeah. for the, finally, for the first time, we can make a video like this, Sergio, and we can put it somewhere that'll be immutable. It won't be deleted. It won't go away. We can put this on IPFS uh, and forever without anybody stopping it or whatever. This is recorded and locked in history. And then you can put that out anywhere. That's a real big move. And we can then trade it because it shows custody. You can then take this on IPFS. Creating NFT and this show for Game Changers could be an NFT that we distribute. And only the people who could watch it are the people who bought it or who we've allowed to share in that NFT. That's a huge game changer in having control and access in a digital world. Up until now, that hasn't really existed. That is powerful stuff, man. Hey, brother, congratulations on all your success on all the, the books and the and the trading and the games. And now now ban royalty. Uh, I need to get in there and become a uh, become an owner of an NFT in that space. I, I was just looking at it. So is it is it one Ethereum that, mm -hmm. that, is so, that the price for it? So, yeah. So for the base, the base level, one Ethereum gets you one vinyl NFT. Now we broken it down to gold and platinum and double diamond, just like the music industry and, and when it talks about the, the number of records sold. Uh, and one vinyl will get you access to one royalty pool. If you bought three vinyls, you could actually, for one ETH each, you could get access to all three royalty pools. Or you could also buy one of the more rare NFTs that have a higher number and different artwork and the like. And some of them will give you access to two royalty pools, some will give you access to three royalty pools. But if you just want to get started and you want to test it out, absolutely. One Ethereum gets you one vinyl NFT that you can then eventually stake in any one of our pools and uh, participate in some of the music royalties we collect. Fantastic. There you go, man. You can be part of the industry in, in one yeah, shot. That was a goal. That was a goal, man. Make you a music mobile. And That's right. you know, the, funny thing, the funny thing is, and I'll leave you with this, the, the catalog that we bought for performance royalties we have people like Justin Timberlake singing songs. We got a bunch of his stuff off of his 2020 album. So we've got uh, mirrors on it. We went, went and got some songs from uh, uh, Rihanna. We've got songs on there from Cher. We got song, a song on there from uh, Beyonce. We've got so, so these are name performers, platinum yeah. performers that are singing in here. And we have part of the performance royalties that we got from one of the writers who just didn't want to continue to only receive his royalties over time, but wanted to get a chance to tap into it. And that's what's happening in the industry. And we're happy to be able to help a writer out. We get 10 years of the, uh, excuse me, eight years of the royalties now. And uh, we get a chance to share that income with whomever decides to stay. That's amazing. It's not a lot of income, 
but it's income that people can tap into if they want to pause their NFTs. Fantastic. No, well, thank you so much for being on, buddy. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate it, Sergio. If you loved what you heard in today's episode of Game Changers, please subscribe and rate us. The lessons and the stories in these podcasts are immensely valuable, so I invite you to share them with a friend who needs to hear it. You may end up being the game changer in their lives. If you loved what you heard in today's episode of Game Changers, please subscribe and rate us. The lessons and the stories in these podcasts are immensely valuable, so I invite you to share them with a friend who needs to hear it. You may end up being the game changer in their lives.